Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Good to be with you this morning, especially for those who are visiting with us. Uh, if you are, I'd love to say hi to you after the service. Love to meet you. Know that this is a smaller group today as people are still, like Mike said, out and about uh, around the, the country, out of the country, uh, including our own Canada team. Um, but glad we get to be here today to, to worship with one another and to do that as we continue in our service and, and, and come to uh, the picking up in our series that we've simply been calling Questions calling it questions because we've been looking at six of the most prominent questions that come up in spiritual conversations. Questions like, is there a God? Or how can I have faith in God in an age of science? Or how can I believe in God in the face of so much suffering? Questions that up until this point have mainly been focused on whether there is a God. But now in our series are going to turn these questions that we're looking at, these questions that we're considering, questions that now in our, uh, in our series are going to turn more specifically to whether there is a Christian God, whether the Christian God is the God who is there. And I just want to say on the front end that these are the questions that begin to make conversations more uncomfortable. And why is that? It's because really these questions are funneling down to, to those which require more of us when we answer them. It requires more of us if you don't just say that there is a God, but there is a particular God to whom you are now accountable once you acknowledge that he is there, that he is now the God, you must live in some sense before. These are the questions that really bring these conversations into that realm of being more uncomfortable. Questions like the one we're going to consider today, isn't Christianity too narrow? You ever been asked that before on the street or, or by one of your neighbors or a coworker, maybe even one of your family members, your kids or, 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 or your friends? Ever been asked that before? Isn't Christianity too narrow? Well, that's the question we're going to consider today, and we're going to do it in part, finally, at the end of the the sermon, we're going to finally do it in part by looking through the lens of Numbers chapter 21, this little known story in Numbers chapter 21. But before we dive in and before we eventually get to Numbers 21, let's just begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask as we've been asking each week for you to be with us in our considerations of these questions. And I, I pray today especially that you would help us to, to see both the, the challenge of Christianity's narrowness and the beauty in it. 
I pray that we would, we would see both the, the challenge and the beauty such that we would be able to, to feel the question like this, to put it in its place, and to use it not to undermine the faith, but to establish it, to lay it before others and invite them to it. And I pray this in the name of your one and only Son, the one who you did choose to work through. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was 1893 when the World's Fair finally came to Chicago and really focused that year on celebrating the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the Americas. And really, the, the World's Fair held in Chicago that year outdid, broke the mold of all other World's Fairs that went before it. It was massive, 200 buildings built just for this occasion, 690 acres of the city dedicated to the festivities, 27 million people showing up over that summer to go through the exhibits and to see what the world had to offer. But one of the lesser remembered achievements of that year's World's Fair was the establishment of what was called the Parliament of World Religions. Anybody heard about it before? The Parliament of World Religions. That because of the, the massive crowd that was, that was infiltrating the Chicagoland area and coming to partake in this expo of all the world had to offer, that somebody had the bright idea that, that they should gather for the first time, they should gather an interfaith group of ministers from various religions from around the world. And they called it the Parliament of World Religions. And it was, in many ways, the first time that the Christianity, which was considered the, the religion of the West, came face to face and was forced to cope with the religions of the East. And in that, it called those who adhered to Christianity for the first time to find their identity among the world's religions. And haven't we been faced with that since, with the globalization of our own society? Now that it's not a, a parliament of religions that we look to over in a, a, a city, and, and it is still headquartered, this parliament of world religions is still headquartered in Chicago, this is not something we must now look to, but this is now something we can find in our own backyards. That we now have, have both Muslims and Sikhs, that we now have Buddhists and Hindus, that we now have atheists, which is very much a religion in and of itself, that we now have these various groups in our backyards. That you can now speak to them, have to speak to them over your back fence. 
so that what Christianity was called to uh, from that meeting, that, that, that interfaith gathering in Chicago, is now something that we wrestle with ourselves. Finding our identity as Christians among the world religions. How do they relate or not? How do we make sense of it or not? Well, in the wake of that 1893 World Parliament of, Parliament of World Religions, one of the ways that became probably the most popular way to understand the place of Christianity among world religions was to do so via an Indian parable that many of you probably will be familiar with. A parable of six blind men who find themselves in a room with an elephant. Six blind men who are groping around and each find themselves, find themselves uh, in relationship to this elephant in a different way. So that one man reaches out his hand and finds himself touching the elephant's side and says to his companions, to me, it feels like a wall. To which a second replies, having reached out his hand and grabbed hold of the trunk, says, no, not to me. To me, it feels like a snake. And another, reaching and finding its foot, says, no, not to me. It feels like a tree. Another, reaching and finding the ear, says, to me, it's a fan. Another, another finding another, a, different, a tusk and saying, no, to me, it's not a, it's not a tree or a, or, a, or a wall or a snake. It's a spear. And lastly, probably the most unlucky of them all, finds himself in the back of the elephant and t- grabs hold of the tail of this thing and says, to me, it's a rope. And hopefully he just doesn't pull too hard, right? But this was a way that, that, that people began to cope with this idea that we are just one religion amongst many. That we are all, and the point of the parable was, that we are all simply blind men groping around in the dark and finding some aspect of that ultimate reality, that ultimate being, if it is that, that ultimate something, but certainly not the whole. That Christianity is just one more blind man trying to find its way to the ultimate. Interesting, right? Which is not something unknown in our world today, not a perspective that is unknown or or unpronounced in our society today. And yet, what I want to suggest to you is that this way of understanding uh, how Christianity, or any other religion for that matter, relates to the others is fundamentally flawed. Fundamentally flawed in at least three ways. That it's first unconvincing as far as a, a parable goes that it's second, even more so, incoherent. And third, that it's unhelpful. First, that it's unconvincing. Second, that it's incoherent. And third, that it's just generally 
unhelpful. First, that it's unconvincing. And here, I just want to suggest to you that if you think this parable through, it's unconvincing because of what? Because the, the moral of the story, the point of the parable, is that the religions of the world would take their humble seat among the rest and recognize that they only have access to part of that ultimate reality and cannot claim access to the whole. That they are to swallow the humility that the parable requires. That we are, in fact, just one more blind man groping around in the dark, finding, yes, maybe part of the whole, but certainly not the whole as it could be known. The point of the parable is to accept the humility that is due us. Yet the parable is unconvincing. Why? Because the one telling the story is the only one who doesn't seem to have to swallow the same humility. He's the only one that has the, the bigger perspective, that is able to tell you that you are the blind man groping around in the dark. And if only you would recognize that, you would start trumpeting your own religion as the one that everyone else should follow. He's the only one that doesn't have to swallow the humility which was brought out actually by a, a very famous Indian, uh, missionary to India, uh, a man by the name of Leslie Newbegin, who said this is, this is supposed, the point of the parable is supposed to, to place on the, the individual the, the, the need to, to, to grasp and hold and, and accept the humility that, that anyone should. But look at the ones telling the story. It is the height of arrogance. It is the height of arrogance to claim that you are the only one, the one who, who has that privileged position to tell all the world's religions that what they have right, they only have right in part, and most of it they probably have wrong. Which means the parable is on. Convincing, like a, 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 a show host who, who, who at one moment denounces the, the, the Christian ethic, the, the living under God and before God, and the next moment positions themselves on their soapbox to, to, to feed you a different one. As if now, just because they got rid of the one authority, they can take its place. This is the height of arrogance. Second, though, this isn't just unconvincing. The parable is even more so incoherent. It's incoherent because it requires of individuals that they hold on to not just contrary, but contradictory truths. Not just contrary, but contradictory truths. Think of it, because the religions of the world, as much as you can whitewash them to say the same thing, to say similar things, when you really dig in, if you're one of those people who cares enough to, to look at the world's religions for what they are, it's not that they're saying different things that can be harmonized. They're saying completely different things that cannot be 
factual. That cannot be true together. Think of Islam and Christianity just as an example of that. It's, it's as if it's, you cannot in, in one fell swoop say that Jesus historically, theologically, and philosophically died, was buried, and rose again from the dead and in the next moment say, but the other side of the story is the one told by the Muslim faith that he really didn't die at all. These are not just contrary, these are contradictory truths, contradictory propositions that cannot be harmonized. It's as if you want to say in one moment, right, you're not grabbing two different parts of the elephant, it's two blind men grabbing the same part and yet saying different things. That they grab the same tail and one says it's in very much alive and the, ver- the next one says it's very much dead. You can't put the two together. Or it's like you had a seventh one who stumbles into the room and finds nothing and says, in fact, he doesn't believe the elephant exists at all. Very different from the six on the other side of the equation who says, yes, he does, even if they don't think the one and the same thing about him. It's unconvincing. But second, it's incoherent. Yet third, and this is where I think the rubber really hits the road. Third, the parable is not just unconvincing and incoherent. It's essentially unhelpful. It's unhelpful. Because in trying to in trying to know more, know something more, claiming to know more about the elephant in the middle of the room. The parable suggests that we can't really know anything at all. The parable suggests that, 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 that what we do know, because it's contradictory and because no one can get to that, that place outside of the blindness of the, of the six, that we really can't know this God at all. Which ultimately undoes the very thing that it was supposed to do. Because pluralism, which is the term used for this, pluralism isn't the denial of the God in the middle of the room. Pluralism is just saying that we can't know that God as we think. Yet it's an attempt to know him more than those who think they know him in the first place. And yet trying to know him more, we turn out not to know him at all. It's unhelpful for the very thing it goes after. Better to, more intellectually honest to, more religiously aware to, allow the, the religions of the world to say what they say and stand on their own two feet and to be judged by it. Which you allow Christianity to do it, appears to stand in all ways that matter. More, I would argue, more many would argue, both historically, philosophically, theologically, scientifically, emotionally, societally, than anything else. And let me just pick up on three of those. 
historically, that this explains both the history of the world and the history of God's own people up to now. That, that this, is not a, this is not a religion that was created by somebody going into the forest and falling into a cave and coming out the next day with a religion that served them best but one that was sculpted over centuries with a, a God who intervened in history and, and, and brought history along so that, historically, it stands on its own two feet. Philosophically, that, 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 that a God who is and under, under, undergirds the world in which we live allows us to to. to, to to quest and inquire about it. It, it undermines the beauty of math and science and, and, and all in literature that seems to, 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 to go beyond cultural norms, that, that speaks beyond culture and, and transculture. It satisfies something in all of us that nothing else seems to be able to. And theologically, that it makes sense of a God who who is in tune with our deepest desires of being in communion with one another, of, of wanting to get to God, which perhaps is the better understanding of the world's religions, just attempts at that to get to God, but a God who cares enough to come and get to us. And this is where this passage in Numbers 21 comes in as an example of this, which brings us back in part to that question of narrowness that we start, had to begin with. Not narrowness in the philosophical sense, but narrowness in this other sense of, of, of is Christianity, does Christianity, does the, 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 the Judeo-Christian faith, does it block out people and, and unnecessarily exclude people from it? To which the Bible, whether you're looking at a microcosm of the gospel like Numbers 21, or you're tracing it through to see the macrocosm of God's plan in Jesus Christ, says no. That among the world's religions, the Judeo-Christian faith is among and is, is the most inclusive that it's even more inclusive than the pluralism wants to, to make religion because only there, what? You, can only, you have to be an enlightened elite to realize that you're not the blind one and everyone else is. This is more inclusive than all the rest. Look at Numbers 21. Let me just read the story for you. It says this, From Mount Hor, they, the, the people of Israel, on their way from slavery in Egypt to salvation in the promised land, set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people began, became impatient on the way. Not a new thing for the people of Israel. This is old news. But it, it's reached a limit here. The, the, the people became impatient on the way. The people speak against God. And against Moses. And this is what they say. They say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. No food, no water, and the food that we do have, which means there was food, not no food. The food that we do have, we loathe. But listen to what the Lord does. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. 
It's interesting, right? Because they have a history with serpents. They have a history with serpents. And, and, and this is what God sends among them. Serpents, just like from the, the very beginning of the story, that this is the problem of humanity and that, that the, 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 the problem inside of you will be seen in the problem of this very public display of these fiery serpents. Fiery serpents among them so that many of the people of Israel died. Verse 7, And the people, though, came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, because we cannot do anything ourselves. Pray to the Lord. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from among us. Not really the issue anymore. Once you're bit by a serpent, that doesn't really help. But they say, take them away. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, listen to what the Lord says. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. When he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent and live. It's a microcosm of God's plan for salvation. Just one picture that you can find all over the Bible, and yet it's always the same. That a people has a problem too big for them to solve. A people has a problem too big for them to solve. Fiery serpents coming among them, bit, and death is now in their body. They can't do anything about it, and they know it. So what do they do? They say, pray to God on our behalf. We, we lost the right to do it ourselves. Pray to God on our behalf. It's our only hope. It's a problem too big for us to solve ourselves. But look at God's answer. God's answer is in recognizing that the problem is too big for yourselves. Uh, put the problem in front of you on a pole erected before you. And if you look on it and recognize that it's too big for you to do anything about it yourself, if you recognize it, then you will live. Now narrow in means. Narrow in means. Only one way to be saved. It is narrow. We ought to embrace the narrowness of God's plan for redemption. It always is. God sets the agenda. He says how it's going to happen. It's one way. On the other side of that, though, it is one way, isn't it? It's a broader plan than it could have been. There could have been no plan. Narrow, but there. Narrow in means. But look at the text. Not simply narrow in means, but broad in application. That whoever looks... That whoever is willing to, to, to recognize in, 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 in their faith, to recognize by looking to, to the demonstration that they cannot do it themselves, whoever, whoever looks, whoever takes my way for themselves, whoever looks will live. Narrow in means. Broad in application. 
That when you get past the philosophical problem, which really isn't a philosophical problem, because every religion of the world, if we're just going to let it be, let them be what they are, allow them to speak for themselves, which is really more intellectually honest, which is more religiously vigorous, and just allowing them to speak for themselves, Christianity is the one that stands out as the one that is broadest. That indiscriminate of where you come from or who you are, bitten by the serpent, if you look to the pole and what is on it, you will live. Not that the pole is magic, but that the God of life can deal with the poison in your veins. And it doesn't really matter after that. Narrow in means, broad in application. And really, whether God's people got this or not along the way, this was God's program from the very beginning. That I will send one who will bear the pain on your behalf, Eve, she will bear the pain on he will bear the pain on your behalf be be bit like you should have been bit whose heel would be nipped and yet he will be the one to crush the serpent's head for who for all your other children narrow in means but what's the difference? Because it's so broad in application. What other religion that man has thought up for themselves comes even close? And this is the program where either you're looking at it in microcosm along the way or whether you're looking at the whole thing and its culmination in Jesus Christ. Because this is what Jesus says to himself. He says for himself on his own behalf. When you get to the Gospel of John in one of the right most beautiful passages of our faith, this is what Jesus says for himself. When he's explaining to Nicodemus, you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot do it unless you're born again, unless you're born from above, unless God does something that you can't do for yourself. And you don't understand this, Nicodemus? You don't understand this, this idea of being born again, the necessity of being born anew because in your body you carry the, the serpent's poison? You don't understand this? Let me explain it, Jesus says. He says this, he says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, verse 12, chapter 3, John, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the, the world, which is an unbelievable thing for Jesus to clue us in on, to course correct the 
the idiosyncrasies of God's people of thinking it's only about them. For God so loved the world, loved it in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Broad in application. Even though, thank God, it's narrow in the means. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that these things are defined. I feel like we have a visceral reaction to any narrowness. This isn't a bad thing. Think of your marriage. You don't want narrowness in your marriage? Think of your family life. It's special to be a part of the family. And it's defined. It has boundaries. That's what makes it what it is. Think of, think of driver's license. You don't want people driving on the roads without a license. You want the narrowness. The narrowness is a good thing. Think of music and how, how, how chords fit together to, to, to work, to, to, to create something beautiful. You don't, you don't want just, just your two-year-old jumping on the harmonica and leading your worship service for you. The narrowness is what gives it beauty. For Catherine and I, we thought of it even these, this past week. We took a, uh, we took a, 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 a trip down to uh, camping in Kentucky, not really for the camping, but because we wanted to check off a bucket list item going to, to Mammoth Cave National Park. You've been there, you know what it is? Because on our bucket list was to, to visit this place, the, the largest, the longest, uh, the longest known um, cave system in the world. 420 miles now uh, mapped out of this cave system. They expect another 600 at some point. I'm sending Emmett soon. <laughs> we went to go check this bucket list off, but, but when we got there, you know, after we had, we had camped for the night, got there in the, in, the, in the dark, set up the tent, get the kids to bed, get up early, go to where we had the, 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 the tour set up, and we, we, we joined the tour group. Before we go in the, 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 the cave, sitting at the mouth of it, up stands the, the tour guide and, and morphs into this military-grade sergeant telling us all the rules you had to abide by. All the rules, and then on top of that, the reasons why you shouldn't go on with it. Now, the rules were something, enough of narrowness for us, but, but really the reasons why you shouldn't go on, that's where it got, it got a little touchy, right? Saying, if you can't make it down the, 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 if you didn't make it down the three steps onto this initial platform, you should not go on, we, us and our five kids, right? You should not go on because you have 540 steps to go. You have two miles of hiking underground. If you don't like the dark, five kids with us, if you don't like the dark, you ought not come because, because you are about to experience absolute darkness. If you don't like heights, you ought to stay behind because you are going to have problems when we cross over these 150-foot gaps between top and, and bottom when we cross over these 150-foot crevices in the middle of the earth or if you have problem being in close surroundings. 
You better not come because when we get to fat man's misery is what they called it. When we get there, you are going to have issues when the the sides begin to cave in and you can barely fit through the crack. Catherine and I were very appreciative of understanding on the front end of knowing the narrowness on the front end and what it was going to take to get through. We didn't think at all or wonder at all whether this guy was being too narrow himself. Why all of a sudden a problem when God decides to save the one God makes? Why all of a sudden a problem? Because we don't ever recognize, we we often fail to recognize what even the Israelites recognized before those fiery serpents. That the problem is now inside of you. After the tour, I went into the bathroom to wash up, carrying Verity. I needed to wash up went in and saw a guy behind me, you know, doing his thing. And he turned, he looks in the mirror, and he looks down, and he hesitates, and walks out. I've known guys like this. You ever know guys like this? They avoid washing their hands in a public restroom. Why? Because it's a public restroom. What they fail to understand is that the problem is already inside of them. They are already the issue. Narrow in means. Thank God it's wide in application. Wide in Jesus Christ. Let me leave you then with three takeaways. Three takeaways. First, embrace the narrowness of Christianity. Embrace the narrowness. Be okay with the narrowness. Ready to engage people around the narrowness of Christianity. That yes, it is narrow, but at least it has a way. And while narrow is the means, broad is the application. Embrace the narrowness. You don't have to hide from it. No one else has a better answer. Everything else is more narrow. So embrace the narrowness of Christianity. Embrace the narrowness of the story. In the microcosm of Numbers 21, in the microcosm of your own life, and in the macro picture of what God's doing in history through Jesus Christ. Embrace the narrowness, but recognize that narrowness isn't the whole story. It has the other side. Broad is the application, which has innumerable implications for how you live. How you live 
in it yourself. That you can't run faster than God. That you can't outmaneuver Him or by mistake slip out of His hands. That God has done what God needs to do to take care of you. But neither then can anyone else, no matter what they do, that if they are a seed of Eve, the seed of Eve is a seed for them. So embrace also, recognize also the other side of the narrowness, that broad is the way. Broad is the way. And while we often, as Christians, as we've gotten into this habit of emphasizing the narrowness because so many other people want to undo it, let's not forget as we preserve that side to remember the other. That this is for all. And it's really the only thing that is. Third, though, while you're embracing the narrowness and remembering the wideness, avoid being narrow-minded. Avoid being narrow-minded in the sense that you put other people into a box where you can't even engage where they're at. Where, where you can't recognize what God might be doing, bringing somebody out of a false religion into, into the only real one, where, where God's put you in their path to, to be the one to, to, to speak into that, to, to be the one to, to bring them along, to show them a better way, where, where you don't just write them off as, as gone and for, forgotten, but that, that you recognize that even in the, the narrowness of the means and the wideness of the way, God has you and wants to use you to make that known. So avoid the narrow-mindedness that will cut that off or, or prejudge something that shouldn't be. And remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. He breaks it all down. Everywhere where we would take a wrong turn or pitch something the wrong way or Jesus is the place where all these microcosms of the gospel come full head and where we get to be born from above. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the work you've done in Jesus. I thank you that it is not a work that you started with him, but a work that you certainly finished in him and will finish through him someday. I ask that even as we go from this place today, that we would go bearing that, bearing it proudly, that, that we know the one true God and, and, and proudly in a sense that we are ready to share that with all who will listen. And I ask that you would grant us many opportunities, many opportunities to combat a, a, a false understanding of, uh, of a better way where, where, where we just dismiss everything around us and we, we take on the part of the enlightened elite and we, we minimize and, and, and not, not only 
We, don't, we not just don't find our identity among the religions of the world, we actually lose it. I pray that rather than that, we would hold tight to Jesus as the only way, a better way, and a way for all. I pray you would do it for his honor and glory. In Jesus' name I pray. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.